0: Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's the heart that cries out to the Lord that knows his mercy and his grace. Call on me and I will answer you, says the Lord. My sincere sympathies to all of you suffering from post-nasal drip and sinus. It must be absolutely terrible. Um, I will remember you in my prayer. Even as I'm preaching, Uh, if you pray for me, I'll pray for you. How about that? What a glorious reality it is to know that God calls us into a life of celebration. That is the essence of the Christian walk. With all its anguish and trials, there's joys, there's thanksgiving. Our lives really should be identified and characterized by celebration, because we are the only people for whom there is no anti-climax to our celebration. Yes? It's wonderful to celebrate birthdays, anniversaries, and happy birthday. Great, tomorrow. Special mention. Um. (laughs) No, thank goodness for organized office, (laughs) not Microsoft office. Um... But it's wonderful to celebrate birthdays and anniversaries. But there's always an anticlimax. But when we celebrate Jesus, there's no need for an anticlimax because he's the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Always start that statement with the today. I, I am the same God today, yesterday, and tomorrow because the moment is so important in Scripture. Being with Jesus in the moment And I want to invite you to celebrate with me God's glorious provision as it's listed for us and described for us in an amazing passage of Scripture. I probably say that every week, but it's worth saying. Because as we come to this section of Acts, Acts 13, from verse 13, we have another epic summary of God's faithfulness. God's goodness, God's provision. And you might have noticed that a number of times in the book of Acts, particularly in the sermons that are preached by mainly the apostles, but Philip as well, there is this focus on God's faithfulness to his people and that focus always starts in the past because the Hebrew people were identified by their history. That's why the gospel that focuses predominantly on a Jewish audience, the Gospel of Matthew, starts with a genealogy proving Jesus' credentials, his birthright. He comes from the line of David, very, very important. And so as Paul and Barnabas fellowship together with believers in Asia Minor, he presents it again on his way to share the gospel. So let's pick up the account from verse 13 of Acts. It's a big chunk, um, but it could be bigger, so be grateful. I'm reading to verse 43, 45. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left him, that's John Mark, to return To Jerusalem. Speculation about why he left. We might get to some of that. From Perga, they went on to Obsidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. As was the custom on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the Law and the Prophets, that's our Old Testament, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement from the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And here starts the message of the history of God's people. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their... God endures our conduct. Please take note. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this... God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king, and he testified concerning David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. That was said of David when he was a young man. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, the Savior as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, Paul goes on, brothers, children of Abraham, and you God fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet, in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they'd carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Push pause for a moment. Where was all of that written about Jesus? The Old Testament. Yes, yes. When they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, the gospel, what God promised our fathers. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second Psalm. Look how he goes back into the Old Testament again. You are my son. Today I've become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, Psalm 16, I will give you the holy and sure blessed promises to David. So it is stated elsewhere, actually this is Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose... Man, there's so many things we could preach on here. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers... I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And this is from the book of Habakkuk. (coughs) Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism Followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. We'll read so far this morning. Now, what you have there is an eye test. Can you see that? All right? It's a map of Asia Minor. And you might see those places marked with Stars, and those names hopefully look familiar, those are the seven churches in the Revelation. That's where they stand. The ruins of those stand today. Philadelphia has not been excavated. The others have to to varying degrees. Ephesus is probably about a third of the ancient city has been excavated, and it's magnificent. Imagine what else they will find there. But that's just to give you some bearing. You see the Mediterranean Sea here, and on the right to the east, you see that tiny sliver of land known as Israel with a few places marked specifically Jerusalem. And then you see the Isle of of Cyprus and Crete. These places are mentioned in Acts, and we've actually just been to Salamis uh, on the Isle of Cyprus. And you can also see, hopefully, the Isle of Patmos, a little bit of rock off the west coast below Ephesus, there's the name Patmos, and there's a little line to a tiny little island. That's where the Apostle John wrote the Revelation. So get hold of a good map, of a first century AD map, so that as you read through Acts, you can find your bearing. So these these are not just weird names and places that don't exist to us. These are places, real places in time and space, and they are in modern-day Turkey, which is the land. Most of the New Testament, if not all of it, happened between Greece and what is today modern-day Turkey. And there over there, you see Greece, Corinth, Ki Athens. So it's in a very actually concentrated area of the map where all these amazing, amazing things happen and then it explode as a cork flies out of the bottle and the champagne, the good news of the gospel, sprays all over and is scattered all over the world. So hopefully that just gives you a little bit of bearing. So when you're planning your next holiday on the Med or your next diving you know, excursion, Go get in one of these places so that you can do a tour of biblical sites and you can do some prayer walking. It's a great, great way to to go about things. So we're going to unpack from verse 13 some of these great truths that declare the glorious provision of God. Now, as Luke, Dr. Luke, was recording Acts, he could not. He didn't have recording devices. He could not record verbatim every word of of a sermon. So what they would do in ancient times is they would summarize and list, record the most succinct parts of that message. So we see on in Acts 2, as Peter was preaching, it says, and with many other words, he continued to warn them. That's like... A catch-all. This sermon's a lot longer, a lot more detailed. So what we have here and what we have in the book of Acts and all of these great sermons are actually summaries. So that's another reason why it's important to read the whole of Acts, read all the sermons, because every, every preacher in the book of Acts is a Jew, and so they start in the same place. They start with the history. And so as you read the various accounts, you can get more and more detail. And it's wonderful to me, and I hope to you, to see how these New Testament leaders, the apostles, understand and interpret the, the Old Testament events in light of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very, very helpful to study that. So though these are summaries, and I hope you realize too, or you probably wish my sermons were summaries. But they actually are. They actually are. One of the most difficult things a preacher has to do uh, is decide what to leave out, and that's traumatic. It's like it's like leaving a child behind. You know, you want to bring it with you, want it, but you can't say everything every sermon. So there's a process of a bit of editing and redaction uh, that goes on, and that's exactly what Paul, uh, what Luke was doing as this message is preached. So as we unpack it, as we celebrate God's gracious provision, what the message reminds us, as the Holy Spirit enabled Paul, he was invited as somebody who was recognized as, as a religious leader, a Pharisee, a person of prominence, to stand up and speak in the synagogue. And I just love the fact that as we read Acts, they're in, in the, on the Sabbath they were in the synagogue. Paul focused, by the way, Paul focused his mission and, in, and his ministry very intentionally. He focused on cities, number one, and number two, he focused on two areas in the cities, the synagogue and the marketplace, because the synagogue is where the Jews were and the marketplace is where the Gentiles were. So very strategic and very intentional. So let's start with the fact that Paul recounts that God provides a residence, what is that residence? Well, it's the land, isn't it? He reminds the people, the people of Israel, what God did. He brought them out of captivity. He brought them out of bondage, and he led them to the promised land. The God, verse 17, of the people of Israel, chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during this day in Egypt. With a mighty hand, he led them out of that country. Now, that's a summary of the ten plagues and the whole thing you read in Exodus, okay? With a mighty hand, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan. That's all the ites. You know, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amalekites, all the ites. Those are the seven nations. And he gave their land to his people as their inheritance, all this took about 450 years. So God provides a residence for his people. And what Paul is doing here is building a bridge from the past to the present. He's framing this grand story of God's grace and provision in the narrative of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel, where it all started. Remember, it starts back in Genesis 12, because that's where the nation begins. Remember, Genesis 11: Tower of Babel, table of nations. God confuses. They had one common language: They're building a tower and a monument to themselves. They were going to be they, We just read about the flood in Genesis chapter six. So God's saving. and this is what God does for us. This is what God does for us all the time. He saves us from ourselves. It's one of the great things about the gospel. Yes, he saves us for himself. He saves us from death, from damnation, from hopelessness. He saves us for his presence, for his service, for relationship with him and each other. But he also saves us from ourselves. He brings us out of that bondage. So we see a lot of application and relevance for us. And it's all based on the faithfulness of God, God's goodness, His faithfulness, His plan, His provision. These are not just. Sometimes we see the Bible uh, as like random events, a whole bunch of information, or maybe too much information, maybe too much, you know, um, intricate, detailed background. But it's not random. This is deliberate. It's intentional. And as we look back on our lives, you know, hindsight is great, isn't it? Isn't hindsight fantastic? 2020 vision as we look back in our lives do you also have those aha moments Ah-ha-ha-ha-ha. thank you lord for not saying yes to that stupid prayer i prayed 20 years ago at the time it was everything it was lord if you don't give me this or if you don't give me her you don't give me him you don't give me that job life as i know will end yes it will but that life stinks And look what you've done. Oh, thank you, Lord. So rooting God's faithfulness and God's provision in the past actually magnifies the reality of the present and how important it is, how this moment is important, and keeps us looking to the future. So it's not about being lost in the past. It's about looking to the past, looking to the present, and then focusing Not on the future, but on Jesus who continues to faithfully lead us. And so what what we're reminded of here is God's provision of a residence. A place we can call home. A place of belonging. A place of permanence. A place of security. Now for us, in the Old Testament... The focus was on the land and New Testament Christians get tangled up with this. They don't, they don't cross the bridge from the past to the present and the future. You'll see in the New Testament, in Acts, in the right, in the book to the Hebrews, in Romans, the focus is not on a geographical land area. The focus is on the seed of Abraham, the spiritual seed of Abraham. So... If you believe that something's going to happen in the nation of Israel, in that patch of sand, in the desert, I would be at variance with you because it's not about that piece of land and it's no longer about an ethnic group. It's about the new creation that God has brought about and that's emphasized in Ephesians chapter 2, the new humanity that God has created. So our residence is not dependent... Here's the the, a big difference. Our residence is not dependent on politics or geography or economics or war or peace or famine. Because it's not a geographical land, it's not a geographical residence. We become the dwelling place of God. And so our our identity, our security, our being, our belonging is not dependent on anything in time and space. You saw, I'm sure, that tragic fire in Joburg. I was the other evening spending some time just on the phone, but with one of our medics who was actually at the scene and describing the horror. And the carnage of that tragedy. Overwhelming, heartbreaking. (laughs) To hear people say, uh, lost loved ones, people jumping out of the third story windows, and some of them fell to their death, and some had massive, horrendous injuries, obviously, because of that. But to hear people say, uh, you know, the little, the little these poor people had. even the papers, you know, for those who had some sort of identification, it's overwhelming, isn't it? For those of you who have had a serious loss in terms of your home, I remember, I remember when the Durston's house burned down on Hill some years ago, standing there on the verge and just watching the horror of that. It is going to rock us. It is going to shake us. But there's always this glorious but. That is not who we are. And that is not our home. That is not our identity. That is not our dwelling. That is not our residence. God is our residence. And there's this beautiful promise that flows throughout Scripture Old and New Testament. It's one of the grand themes that comes from the very mouth of God and it, it finally reaches its conclusion at the end of the revelation. I will be their God. They will be my people and I will dwell with them. I will says God. Not maybe, It depends, I'm not sure, trying to work out the costs, you know, get back to you. I will be their God. They will be my people. And I will dwell. I will abide. Behold. Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. He's speaking to his church. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, as has been said, the handle is on the inside, the handle's on our side. And this is not an evangelistic verse, by the way. It's it's not to be shared with non-believers, because Jesus is speaking with his church, his people who shut the door of their lives, of their church, of their ministry. They've shut the door in the face of, of Jesus, the very head of the save and savior of the church. But if you open the door, I will come in. And I will sup. I will have a meal. The Middle Eastern significance of Food's important in any culture. If there's a culture where it's not important, I'm not interested in that culture. I mean, no really, what's it to know? What's it to know? But it's important in every culture. And in the Middle Eastern culture, if you take someone into your house to give them shelter and you feed them, you are saying, I will protect you, I will nurture you, I will sustain you. It's saying a lot of things. So Jesus says, if you open the door, I will come in, I will have a meal with you. And I will dwell. I will reside. So as Paul recounts this amazing history, he wants to get to the point where believers then and now and forever realize that God's glorious provision is a permanent, eternal residence. John says, and I saw the new Jerusalem. See, there's a mixture of metaphors here. I saw the new Jerusalem coming out of, out of heaven as a building. No, as a bride. And Hang on, I thought you, thought you said it was a city. Well, the city is a garden, is the bride. With all of these pictures, these word pictures to try and describe the grandeur and the beauty of dwelling with God forever. I saw her coming as a bride, beautifully prepared for a husband. There's the, there's the wedding theme. That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5 as he speaks about husband and wife and all coming together, and I heard a voice saying, so John hears and he sees, he sees and he hears, he hears and he sees, he sees and he hears. And I heard a voice saying, now, easy on those, now the dwelling place of God is with men. Are you making all these connections? Are there sparks here? So I have to do this in the sermon because these guys are covering so much ground. So we've got to try and pull as much as we can together. John 14, we know the words so well. From the lips of Jesus, you believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house. Are many mansions, many rooms. Don't get too literal with it. It's just explaining there's enough space for everybody, and it's permanent. If it were not so, I would not have told you. He's not some sort of salesman, you know, trying to convince us to need something. No, he's with this. Is what, and with great respect to salesmen. The, the the art of sales is to convince people they want something they already need. Yeah? See, because if I want it, but if I convince myself I need it and somebody helps me do that, I'll pay for it. In my father's house, if it were not so, I would not have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you I think it's important also to highlight the fact that that going is not to heaven. It doesn't take Jesus 2,000 years to build heaven. I mean, that's especially ridiculous if you believe that he created the earth in six days. But anyway, um, I go to prepare. He's going to the cross. That's I'm the door. The curtain open from top to bottom, from God to man access into the very presence of God. I go to prepare a place for you so that, in order that, here's the purpose of my going to the cross, so that you may be where I am. The thief on the cross, Lord, remember me when you enter your glory. What is the dying, suffering, suffering, Jesus who's carrying the burden of the world the sin of the world of mankind past present and future crushed between man and God I tell you verily truly amen amen you will be with me that's the focus you will be God provides a residence he provides a land, an identity, a security. In order to do that, you need another very important component. And Paul summarizes this in just a few verses from verse 22. How are we doing so far? I know this is a lot of information, but I'm summarizing, okay? Just when you think it's too much, shut up. Or you're talking too long. I'm summarizing, okay? I'm summarizing a lot. This is painful. It's agonizing, all Right. It hurts. So he got them to the land. This all took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges. We got the book of Judges. Some of the prominent ones, Deborah, Gideon, Samuel, but there was Jephthah, there was all over a the people. God gave them the judges until the time of Saul, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king and he gave them, oh, Samuel, the prophet. Then he asked for a king, gave him Saul and Saul now is preaching, so he remember he's named after this first king, not the greatest king of Israel. By but... I think he was very glad when his name, you know, he could focus on his Greek name, which was Paul. Um, but he had a massive change as well within him. He see, see how God's providing all of this. He provides the land. He gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled forty years. Saul. David, Solomon, all reigned 40-year periods. After removing Saul, and now you've got to go back and read a whole bunch of fascinating information, which I've been doing over the last couple of weeks. After removing Saul, he made David their king. And he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. God provides a residence, but God also provides a ruler. Every land needs a ruler, doesn't it? So do we. We have, we don't, you know, we have like our, the history of our politicians is like the history of the northern kingdom, which is Israel and this one died and this one succeeded and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord if you want to know the history of Southern politics and what's going to happen in the future just read 1 and 2 Kings and 1 Thessalonians Chronicles and you'll know the whole story oh what a surprise he did evil he died, next one and he did evil that's the northern kingdom but David did great evil as well but God had chosen him, and God says of him, "As a teenager, as a shepherd, there's a man after my own heart." So God provides a ruler, and God provides the foundation and the basis for the Davidic line, and the prophecies "Out of the stump of Jesse will come. You know? It's all there in the Old Testament. God provides a ruler. And and the point of the kingdom of Israel and the point of the kings, so zero godly kings in the north, 19 kings in the north. This is walks of the Bible, very helpful stuff. Zero out of 19. Southern kingdom, Judah, 20 kings, eight godly kings. Okay, today... That would be a pass, 8 out of 20. All right? But in our day, uh, definitely not. Definitely not. Failing on your ear. But God is setting up the, the typology, the pattern, because he has this grand purpose. And he's preparing the way for the descendant. He will, And the promises are in the Old Testament that he will reign forever and ever and ever. And so Jesus is born in the city of David. He's born in the house of bread. Bethlehem, two Hebrew words, Beit, house, and lechem, bread. The house of bread. Not surprising then that Jesus calls himself the bread of life. That's not surprising if you think about Bethlehem. What do you find in a bakery? Bread. I never find my favorite one because it's very popular. It's always gone before I get there. But bread comes from the house of bread, comes from a bakery, the bread of life, born in Bethlehem, duh. Got it? And I was just reading in my quiet time this morning, this cannot be the Messiah because where, who, which prophet comes from Nazareth. He didn't come from Nazareth, you chops. He was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth. But once again, when we talk about the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus, the ruler, he never... Here's the big thing for each one of us. He never comes according to our expectations. Philip Yancey has written a very good book called Disappointment with God, and we could all write that book, if we're honest. But when we unpack it, when we get over the tantrum, you know, and we start to process, and we come back to the... This is why the grand story, this massive... Narrative is so important because it grounds us, gives us bearing, gives us hope, and at the same time, it rebukes us. And then we look back and we realize, I I had a very, I had a very deliberate sort of rigid expectation of what God had to do for me in my life. He didn't answer my prayers. Where in the Bible does it say God has to answer my prayers anyway? He answers his prayers. So if we want to see more of God at work in our lives, let's pray God's prayers. He always answers those. Let's pray Jesus' prayers. Let's pray biblical prayers. Paul, in his writings, you will see he's praying all the time. Let's pray those prayers. But God never comes according to our expectation because he's on his own mission, and his mission is his glory. And we get to fit into that. That's the best thing we can do. That's the best life we can live. But God provides a ruler. And so it's quoted in these passages, uh, in this sermon in Acts 13, God's promises from the Old Testament about the ruler who would come. It's not David. It's not an earthly king. It's the God-man. It's the fulfillment of all God's purpose. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. You've got to unpack some more of this incredible story, and you will find... I'm interrupting myself again. You know, when we read Scripture... We often read scripture looking for ourselves. What is God's word for me today? We have a promise box, you know, and we pull out a promise, and this is God's promise to me today, often taken completely out of context. Wonderful verse, but completely out of context, and now it just applies to me. No, God didn't write the Bible for you and me specifically. He wrote it for everybody, and it applies to us. So if you, here's the key, that's what I'm trying to say. If you look for Jesus... In scripture doesn't matter, Old and New Testament. Charles Spurgeon said, You can drop me anywhere in the Bible, and I will run cross country to get to Jesus. And he had a way of saying things. So, if we go to scripture looking for Jesus, you will find yourself. But don't go looking for yourself, find Jesus. And then you'll discover, ah, I have a residence, I have a place, I have a home. But in order to experience the security of that home, you need to acknowledge and surrender to the ruler the king of kings. You know, in the Old Testament, they were set up in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, places called cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. And in the case of an accidental death, somebody was killed accidentally, manslaughter, we might call it. They, they had to, but they could, flee to a city of refuge. And when they got to the gates of those, one of those cities, they would present their case to the elders and the ruler of that city and say, I killed a man, but it was an accident. It was not intentional. There was no malice forethought. And that would be evaluated. It's not like you get in and then they decide if they'll accept you as a refugee. You have to stand at the gate and plead your case. And they would confer, and if they decide, based on the evidence you've given us, we—we, we, it sounds like an accidental death, we'll take you in. Well, hot on your heels, why there was such an urgency to do that, hot on your heels was the avenger of blood, who was coming to kill you because you killed his brother, sister, father, mother. And he'd get to the city gate and say, where is that guy? And the city would say, well, we let him in. Why'd you let him in? I mustn't do this today. Why'd you let him in? (laughs) Because he told us his story, and we judged it to be an accidental death. Well, let me tell you my side of the story. He killed my brother, father, sister, mother, friend, and then they would hear out the story of the accuser. Sounds like doesn't sound like prosecution, prosecution defense. All of which is based in the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments specifically. But so then you present his case. And then the, the guy who ran for his life is in the Brook stand Still, your boss <laughs> is ni bangni. Why are his knees knocking? Because the leaders of the city might let him out if if his story wasn't true. See, the beauty of telling the truth is you never have to change your story. You don't have to remember the lie. You just tell the truth. So if they evaluate that the story of the accused was right, it was an accidental death, they would say to the avenger of blood, sorry, bud, you have to go away. But there was a caveat there. When the high priest dies, you can come back. Because that person could stay in the Sea of Refuge as long as the High Priest was alive. When the High Priest died, amnesty was over. So what was your prayer every day? Long live the High Priest. Viva the High Priest, viva. You've probably become his personal medical assistant and you know keep him alive. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, what does Hebrews say about Jesus? He's our great high priest. Are we guilty? Guilty of sin. Was our sin accidental or intentional? Don't give me your opinion. Tell me what the Bible says intentional. Do we deserve death? Yes guilty as charged, but we fled to the city of refuge. And that's Jesus. But he's also not just the high priest, he's the great high priest. And here's the good news. He lives forever and ever. You don't look like that's good news. I don't know what else to tell you, man. That's the best I've got, if that's not good news. Looks like you've been baptized in lemon juice. But I had to tell you that, because he's, he's our high priest, he's our ruler, he's in charge. No one can get to us. The accuser can't get to us. The accuser of the brethren can't get to us. That's why it's so important to submit to the, the ruler, the great high priest, the king of kings, and lord of lords. And not only is he, so this is all about Jesus, obviously. Not only is he our, our our ruler, not only is he our residence, but he's our redeemer. He's our redeemer. So all of these realities, these glorious realities, are not places or events. They're a person. I love it when I saw a, a speech given by Professor John Lennox at Oxford University in the Oxford um, debate thing, he he said Jesus is not a principle. He said truth is not a principle or a philosophy. Jesus is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Preach it, brother. Amen. So God provides, lost to our Redeemer, the, and I've put that in capital, the T, definite article, definitely a definite article, the Redeemer. And so what we're reading about here is this salvation history. And interestingly, as we move into injury time, interestingly, the theme, Paul, by the way, this sermon, there's a, it's, you, you study this and you go back and look at Peter's sermon in Acts 2. It, they're very similar, as I've mentioned, but even in some of the detail. He goes back, to the fact that Paul mentioned, in uh, Peter mentioned in Acts two that that there are two tombs, people. There's two tombs in the city. You can check them out. Don't take my word for it. There's two tombs. I want you to go visit. Everybody know where the tomb of David is. Yeah, yeah. We went there to school. You know, field trip. We took our kids. Right. Go. What's in the tomb of David? And bones, man. Second tomb I want you to know, go visit today. The tomb of Jesus. And contrary to myth, it wasn't mistaken that everybody knew where it was. The Romans knew where it was. The Jews knew where it was. The disciples knew where it was. And if the people didn't know it, and if there was no tomb of Jesus that was empty, Peter would have got lynched on the day of Pentecost. Why am I talking about this? Because, verse 34, says the fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So to it is stated elsewhere, which is Psalm 16, verse 10, I think, you will not let your holy ones see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. Okay, no surprises. That's what happens to every one of us. If you get cremated, which is no biblical issue with that whatsoever, you just speed up the process. And if you're worried about God putting you back together again, panic no more. He made us out of dust in the beginning. I think he can do it again. I I don't think he's lost the recipe. It's all good. My view is I've taken up enough space in my life. I don't want to take up any space in my death. So cremate me, scatter my ashes. Last one standing has to do that for me. Okay. I've done it for so many of you. It's not unreasonable. Okay. When he served God's purposes, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay because he rose again and he's our Redeemer. In the words of the beautiful story of Ruth, read all of this great stuff, man. He's our kinsman Redeemer. And what did the kinsman Redeemer do? Thank you for asking. Very good question. He restored your identity, your status, your sense of being, your sense of belonging. He gave you a home, shelter, food, food you're back in. He's our kinsman redeemer. He gives his life for us. But he lives forever and ever and ever. That's all I'm going to tell you today. That's all I can tell you today. <laughs> Come back in the 10 o'clock. I'll I'll keep, them, I'll keep them after school and give them some more information. But I want to encourage us to realize that any time when you're a Christian is a great time for celebration. Don't wait for that special event. Enjoy your special event, but don't wait for a special event to celebrate. Sometimes when the boy's very small, and they still did. No, they never did what we told them. But we felt like we were in more control. Uh, we would have some special dinners sometimes. Candlelight, you know, um, grape tizer. And, and they'd come to the table and they'd say, what's this for, Mom? What? What is, What?" and we'd say, we're celebrating. And then they realize, oh, I've lost, forgotten my brother's birthday or Mom's You know, you see the panic across the face. And we say, no, 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 no. The special occasion is us. This family. We're around this table again. Never take that for granted. We're around this table. And God is good. So we want to celebrate him and we want to celebrate us. So we just randomly have these little celebrations. Any day, no matter how we feel, no matter what's going on, any day is a good day for celebrating God's glorious provision. But I don't feel like it. you will afterwards. This is going to be good for you. This is going to be really good for you. So we can think our way into feeling better about God. But how can we not? feel good about God and celebrate him when we just read scripture like we've done today. We've been pulling things from all over the place because it's all part of this grand story. And so we, like no one else on earth, have the greatest reason to celebrate because he's always good and he's always worthy and he's always ours and we are always his. Let's stand together. As we close in prayer, Lord, you are indeed so good, so, so good, and your loving kindness. your steadfast love, your loyal love, never fails. Thank you that you are our residence. Thank you that you are our ruler and a a greater, more benevolent, gracious, loving, holy, righteous ruler we could not ask for. Thank you that you are our redeemer, that you have saved us. You have brought us out of darkness, out of slavery, out of bondage, out of disaster and certain death. May we celebrate you today and every day. Amen.